would you open with me to the book of Mark? We're in the Gospel of Mark, working through the first 13 verses this morning. When you find that, go ahead and stand, and I'm going to read those 13 verses for us. Mark 1, 1 through 13. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him. And were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we are thankful to be able to come to this passage today and see the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Lord, in some ways... When we approach these Gospels, they're familiar territory. But I pray that that would not make us dull of hearing. That you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, show us something new today. Some way in which this applies to us that we may not have seen before. Father, I ask that you would empower me by your Holy Spirit. Anoint me to preach your word this morning. That I would do it boldly and accurately and clearly. That you would give us ears to hear and hearts to do what you show us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we spent the entire time introducing the book of Mark and talking about the person, Mark, the author, the human author of the book. So I'm going to give you a two-sentence overview of what we did last week, and that is to remind you that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was closely associated with Peter, who was. And he was writing to, and I think from, Rome. So he's writing to Gentile believers in Rome. And we're going to talk a little bit about how that plays into what he says here at the beginning of his book. And his theme, his focus, is Jesus as the suffering servant. That much we talked about last week. I have three simple ideas for you this morning. Three main ideas, and they are, Number one, the good news is that Jesus came. Jesus came, and that's good news. Number two, the good news is that Jesus identified with us. 
identified with us in terms of his baptism and in terms of his temptation. And number three, the good news is that Jesus won. He was victorious in his temptation. So those are the main concepts that I want to get across as we look at these 13 verses together. So go back with me, please, to verse 1. Our first point is the good news is that Jesus came. Verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have a period at the end of verse 1 in my Bible. That's actually a fragment. It's more like a title, really. This is Mark's title for his book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning, that's the same word used in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's the idea. This is his beginning. John went much further back, didn't he? But this is where Mark is starting. It's the same word that's translated from Hebrew into Greek. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1.1. So that's where he's beginning. It's a very good place to start, right? In the beginning. That's what he's going to start with. In the beginning of the gospel. So what Mark is going to give us is not the beginning of Jesus' earthly life. It's not even the beginning of John's earthly life. We have that in Matthew and Luke. Luke gives us John the Baptist's birth and the information surrounding that. But this is the beginning of the gospel. So it's important for us to know what the gospel is. And we've talked about this. We talked about it even last week. Gospel means good news. And when we're talking about the gospel in terms of the Bible, in terms of Jesus... The gospel is the good news about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection, coming alive again. But one thing I don't think I knew before I was studying this week is that gospel is not unique to us in the Bible. Gospel was a word that was used in that culture at that time. Remember, he's writing to believers, Gentiles, Roman citizens, people in Rome. And the way they used that was if the emperor had a birthday coming up, they would publicize that, almost like a party invitation, and they would call that the gospel. It's good news. It's good news. The emperor has a birthday coming up. Or maybe it's a young emperor who, who came to his stage early, and he's reached the age of majority is another one that I read, that they would celebrate that. Some, a new emperor comes to power. They would celebrate that. And those party occasions, those festivals, would be joyful tidings. That's how they used the word. So Mark is using that word to start off his gospel, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And then he describes Jesus three ways here. Jesus, Christ, Son of God. So let's talk about those. Jesus, the name means Jehovah, the creator God, the self-existent one, the God of the Old Testament, the God of all time and eternity. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. That's what his name means. That is his name. Christ is more of a title. Christ means anointed. It's, he's the Messiah. And then the Son of God. And we read Son of God, and we tend to think in terms of Father-Son. It's Father's Day. We understand earthly human relationships. I think that's kind of the reason God designed it that way, that we would understand His relationship to some extent, God the Father, God the Son, through our earthly relationship, parent and child. But when He wrote jesus christ the son of god it wasn't just a relationship father and son when he says son of god he means jesus is god it's referring to his deity 
So in this little introductory title, he's telling us a lot. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the Lord is salvation. Christ, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. The son of God. He is God come in human flesh. He has all that packed into that first little statement. Someone wrote that Son of God is the favorite title of Mark for identifying Jesus. I don't even know if it's the most common because normally Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man and we'll see that some in the book of Mark. But Son of God seems to be Mark's favorite because it appears at significant points in the gospel and sometimes in the mouths of some interesting personalities. Perhaps most striking is that the disciples never recognized Jesus as the Son of God in the gospel of Mark. The demons get it right. We're going to see demons saying, I know who you are. You are the Christ of God. You are the Son of God. Even a Roman centurion in chapter 15, he understands it. Surely this was the Son of God. But not until after the resurrection did the disciples recognize him as the Son of God, as Mark tells us the story. Now, one clarification. Please understand, Jesus has always been god he has always been the son of god there are some people who will teach that here at the baptism or later at the transfiguration that that's when jesus became the son of god no he's always been the son of god the relationship as we understand it of him being the son sent to earth he came and he was born as a baby he has not always been called jesus but he has always been the son for eternity does that make sense that's an important thing for us to remember Hebrews 13 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he has always been the Son of God. He has always been God. See John chapter 1 for that. Have you ever stopped to think why the Gospels begin the way they begin? Matthew starts with a genealogy. Luke starts with, we said, the birth of John the Baptist. John just starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with... They're all different. The beginnings are all different. Why would Mark start the way he did and the answer again goes to the fact that he's writing to the people of rome because in rome the king the emperor would have a herald or an announcer go before him if he was coming into town he would have somebody there say hey the emperor's coming so the people of rome would likely have been more interested in the herald the person who is proclaiming that a king is coming that God is coming, then they, they would have been about, remember he's describing Jesus as a servant. No one cares so much about the ancestors of a servant, the family tree, or the birth, where he was born. But the people of Rome would have cared about the messenger being sent forth. Now, as we approach these 13 verses, I want you to notice two repeated words. They're wilderness and spirit. And they kind of tie this together. When we get to verse 12, we get wilderness and spirit in the same verse. So be on the lookout for those. We're going to see the word wilderness, or your translation may say desert, about four times in these verses, and the spirit will come up three times. So with the title out of the way, here's verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight when he says as it is written particularly any jewish people listening but people who are familiar with the church would would realize okay he's quoting the old testament this is going to be an old testament 
quotation. And that's exactly what it is. It says, in the prophets, or your translation may say, in Isaiah the prophet, because that's probably the better manuscripts have that version. But the point is, if you have cross-references, you can see it's a composite. It's a, a molded together, a blended quotation from two places, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1. So Isaiah and Malachi blended together to talk about, first off, the messenger. This is the messenger that was promised in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the Messiah, to announce his coming. And it's described here as the voice of one crying. The verb there is a loud cry or shout. So John the Baptist is trying to get the attention of everybody. Hey, I have important news here. There is somebody coming after me. Someone very important who's coming. You need to be ready. You need to repent. So he's crying. Where is he crying? In the wilderness. That was the prophecy concerning this one. And guess where John the Baptist goes? He goes into the wilderness. And he's crying. He's preaching. What, what does the rest of the quotation say? It says to make his paths straight. I'm going to send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. What's he crying? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Again, going back to that time, ancient times, if the king is coming to an area, they're going to clean it up and they're going to get the roads in great condition. We see this today. The modern Olympics takes place in a different city every four years. And they do a lot of infrastructure work and try to make everything look great and cover up the graffiti or build new buildings and stadiums and that kind of thing. They try to put on a great show, a great face to the world. And that's the kind of thing here. They were familiar with this statement of prepare the way, make his path straight. You would fill in the potholes and you would send some people uh, to go ahead of the entourage for the, the emperor and make sure that, number one, the path is smooth. He's not going to get jostled in his coach, carriage, chariot, whatever you would call it. And it's safe. If there are any gangs of bandits along the way we're going to make sure that that gets cleared out as well so this is the person who's going before and he's making paths straight and that especially would have fit with the people in rome reading this because you may be familiar with the statement all roads lead to rome the roman roads allowed the gospel to go as it did in that first century they were incredible roads i learned this this week Fifty thousand miles of first class military highways two hundred thousand miles of secondary highways and guess what? They weren't known for their curvy roads. They were known to be dead straight. Whatever was in the way, they would build a bridge. They would carve into the mountain or whatever. They had straight highways. And that's what we read here, to make his path straight, to get ready for the one who's coming after. That was what John the Baptist was doing. So Mark begins with this quotation. He doesn't say it's John yet. We don't know it's John yet, but we've read the rest of the chapter. So we know it's John the Baptist he's describing using these two Old Testament prophecies. Now we read about John in verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness. That's another repeated word in this section of Scripture. Baptizing in the wilderness. There's the wilderness. And preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I told you last week that John was one of the most common, if not the most common, Jewish name in the first century. Because remember, the author of our book, his Jewish name was John. But this is a different John. This is John, we call it, commonly call him what? John the Baptist or baptizer. That's how he's known. Why is he known? Well, we're reading about that here. John, the name itself, means the Lord is gracious. 
and he's considered to be the last Old Testament prophet and the forerunner, the herald, the announcer of the Messiah. How did Jesus describe John the Baptist? There is no one born among women greater than he is. Jesus had a very high view of John the Baptist. He was also some sort of cousin. They were related, as we read in Luke. But John, whom we call the baptizer, the Baptist, is there fulfilling the prophecy that Mark just quoted in verses 2 and 3. And what's he doing? He's baptizing him. That's why we call him John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness, and he's dunking people in water. Why would he do that? Well, baptism itself was not unfamiliar to Jewish people. They had ceremonial washings. If you read the Old Testament, there are some, sometimes they had to, we would say, take a bath. So they were familiar with that, but that was a repeated process. And what John the Baptist was doing was different because it was a one-time act. Furthermore, if I, a Gentile, wanted to become a Jew, I had to have a baptism. That was part of the process to become a proselyte, to become a con convert to Judaism. I would have to be baptized. That would be a one-time act. So that's closer now to what John's doing. But who's coming to John? Are they Gentiles coming who want to be Jews? I'm asking you a question I guess I haven't answered yet because it's in verse 5. But the people coming to him are not Gentiles wanting to become Jews. They are Jews. And they're coming to him because they're ready to admit that they, even though they're members of God's chosen people, God's family, the Jews, they need salvation. They need forgiveness. They need repentance. So that's what it's described here. Baptism of repentance for the remission, or your translation may say forgiveness of sins. Let's understand something here. They are not coming to be baptized so that their sins will be forgiven. They are coming to be baptized to show that they are confessing their sins. They're agreeing with God about their sins, that they need forgiveness of sins. They're being baptized to show everybody, I need God to forgive my sins, and because I've repented, he's forgiven me, and I'm being baptized. Not quite the same as what we follow as baptism in the church age, but in some ways similar. So they're admitting, I need to be baptized because I need forgiveness. So baptism did not produce the repentance. It did not produce the forgiveness. It was a result of them. What is repentance? We talk about this a lot too. Repentance is a U-turn. It's turning about. Changing my mind that results in a change of action. Forgiveness. We talked about that as well recently. It is having my debt of sin canceled by God. So that's what they're doing. They're coming out and they're hearing him preach. And he's preaching a message of repentance. If you read the other Gospels, you'll see the same thing. Part of his message, he has a two-part message. First part is forgiveness. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. Who's he talking to? The Jewish people. And by God's grace, they are repenting. Most of them would have thought, no, I am a son of Abraham. I'm a daughter of Abraham. I don't need to repent. Those other people, they need to repent. I don't need to repent. Because I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. Verse 5, probably hyperbole, probably exaggeration, but for the point of showing us that everybody's coming. This is not a small group. This is a large crowd. All the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, John the Baptist, and were all baptized by him, where? In the Jordan River. 
how? Confessing their sins. They all went out. Someone described it this way. He had them all sit down and he preached to them and told them they needed to repent. They needed to turn from their sin. And as they heard that, they were convicted. The Holy Spirit did a work in them. And they got up and they got in long lines to be baptized. And so if you've seen movie depictions of it or, or anything like that, you'll see lots of people waiting to get baptized and taking their turn. And that's what it was like. And this went on for some time. And this seems to be, Jesus seems to have come on the scene at the height of John the Baptist's ministry in the wilderness of baptizing people who were repenting of their sins. Tradition tells us that it was near the fords of Jericho, that part of the Jordan River. Don't know for sure. And what are they doing? They're confessing their sins. What does it mean to confess my sins? It means to agree with God about my sins, to call my sin what God calls my sin. Here's one person's definition. True confession implies our willingness to call our sins by the name that God gives them. It's not a weakness. It's not just my personality. It's not that I just slipped up again. Oh, I made a little mistake. We need to call our sin, sin. You hear me quote 1 John 1, 9 frequently. If we confess our sins and forsake them, he's faithful and cleans us up. What is that confession part? It's agreeing with God that my sin is sin. There's grace in that, folks. For as long as I excuse my sin and try to justify myself, oh, it wasn't that bad, oh, I didn't really do that, oh, I didn't really mean it, there's not grace for that. But once I can admit, no, I lied, no, I was unkind, no, I was sinfully angry, God, I agree, I blew it, I was wrong, I sinned. There's grace and forgiveness for that. Same in our human relationships. If I can say, son, I was angry. I should not have said that to you. Will you forgive me? And they say, yes. Now, now we have a place to go because there's grace for that. Verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. Why was he wearing this? Why was he eating this? Well, a little part of it is that he had been told that he would be a Nazarite. There's, there's a vow you can read about in the Old Testament. That told what he could and couldn't eat. He's out in the wilderness, so this is appropriate clothing for the wilderness, but it's also clothing of poor people. So he probably doesn't have a lot of money. He's out in the wilderness, and probably the biggest reason he's wearing this particular getup is that that's what Elijah wore. And what did the Old Testament say? It would say, before the coming of the promised one, the Messiah, Elijah will come first. And so they were expecting Elijah to come. And so here is he, to us he would look like somebody in a Halloween costume, but he's wearing camel's hair and a, just a leather belt. And he's out there and he's preaching a message of repentance. And they're saying, hey, he, looked, he reminds us of what we've read about Elijah. That's how he's described. And here he is figuring to be Elijah, who is expected to come. And he's eating locusts and wild honey. And in case any of you all want to adopt that diet, then even in the Old Testament, it, it was kosher, it was okay to eat certain types of locusts and wild honey. And if you want to search it out, there are other people who say, no, it wasn't locusts, it was the carob tree pod and this other stuff. It says locusts. I think it was locusts. But is that important to the story? No. The important part is that he is personifying Elijah to them, and they're seeing this is it, this is the guy, this is the messenger who is coming before the face of Jesus. Verse 7. And he preached. This is the second part of his message. He preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, 
whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's preaching. Literally, he's proclaiming. We know he's doing it with a loud voice from the early verses there. He is a herald telling everybody he's coming. Jesus, he doesn't name him. He doesn't even know who he is yet. He's saying he's coming. There's one coming after me who is the Messiah, the promised one. And I get to tell everybody he's coming. So the two-part message, I told you, has two parts. It is to repent of your sin and to watch, to open your eyes, to look around because somebody's coming. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. Pay attention. Be on the lookout. This strange statement to us about the sandal strap, he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loosen his sandal strap. This is the thong part of the sandal. And perhaps you've read or heard or studied when we talk about Jesus washing his disciples' feet, that's what the lowliest servant would have done. Same thing. You have a guest come into your home, the lowliest servant would have untied the sandals of that guest. And guess what? If you had a servant in your household who was of Jewish descent, that person wasn't required to do this. Jews weren't required to do this. This was considered so lowly, so so far beneath the dignity of anybody else. Nobody would want to do this. So put in your own mind the job you would least like to have, the messy, the dirty, the job that you just would never want to have to do. That's what he's doing. He's talking about that, and he's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that for this person. That describes John's view of himself in light of the Messiah, the one he, whom he is announcing. And he says, he, the one who's coming after me, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So let's take just a minute and describe what's the difference between what John is doing out there in the wilderness and what is this baptism with the Holy Spirit that the one after him is going to do. Well, baptism, remember, is a form of identification. That describes our New Testament baptism as well. Believer's baptism is to identify yourself with Christ, with his work of his death and his resurrection. We talk about this when we have baptism services. You're identifying yourself with Jesus. So baptism is an identification. Please put those two ideas in your mind. The baptism then of repentance is I am identifying myself that I am a sinner. I need forgiveness of sins. I'm repenting of my sin I'm identifying with this message of John. I want him to baptize me. Makes sense, hopefully. Then what is this other baptism? The one that Jesus, the one who's coming after him, is going to do with the Holy Spirit. That is going to identify members of the body of Christ with Christ. Who is Christ? Christ is the head of the body. We read about that in 1 Corinthians and other places. So, when does this take place? This takes place when someone comes to Christ. I am baptized in Christ. I'm added to the body of Christ at salvation. At the moment of salvation, whether I understand it or not, whether I've ever been taught this or not, I am added to the body of Christ. I am baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ. He comes to dwell inside me. That is, the Holy Spirit does at that time of salvation. That is what's predicted here. And there are other things we can talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some people call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can have that conversation another time we have in other messages. But what I want you to understand right now is this baptism that Jesus is going to bring with the Spirit is something that we receive at salvation. Automatically, if you're a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. That's what John is predicting 
that's different from the baptism that John has been doing there out there in the wilderness for people who are coming and saying, I'm sinful, I need to be forgiven of my sin, I need to repent of my sin, and they are showing that by being baptized. You with me? Does that make sense? We're going to move on to our second point now. First, we saw that the good news is that Jesus came. He is the Savior. Second, the good news is that Jesus identified with us. We, we're seeing that right now. He came to be baptized by John. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days. Mark isn't concerned with exactly when it was, but it came to pass in those days while John was out there in the wilderness baptizing that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This tells us that Jesus had been living prior to his public ministry in Nazareth. We, we have that in, I believe it's Luke as well, telling us about Nazareth. It's about 70 miles away. So he, this isn't something he just decided to do one afternoon. He had a planned trip to come to John, where John was baptizing, at the Jordan River, in order to be baptized. Now, why have I, I I've told you several times now, why are people coming to John to be baptized? Because they are repenting and turning from their sin. Did Jesus have any sin to turn from? He did not. He was sinless. He had never committed a sin. He was about 30 years of age, another gospel tells us. Has he committed any sin? No. Did he fight with his brothers and sisters? Not in a sinful way, no. Never stole, never cheated, never lied. I can, I can imagine he wrestled with his brothers. That's, that's why I'm thinking that. Jesus had no need for forgiveness. So the reason he came was because he wanted to fulfill the Father's will. At the beginning of his earthly ministry, he was coming, and he is identifying with us. He's identifying with us who are sinners, who do need to repent of our sin and find forgiveness in him. Verse 10. I told you last week that we were going to see the word immediately a bunch of times in the book of Mark, and this is our first one in verse 10. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the word immediately. This is the fast-paced narrative style of Mark's writing. John MacArthur says that Mark used this adverb more than the other three gospel writers combined. So Matthew, Luke, John, Adam up. How many times I said immediately? Mark uses it more than that. This is his word for this go gospel that we've been talking about. He says the heavens parted. The word parted can be translated as torn open. Ripped apart. This is the same word that Mark uses later to say that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. So it's kind of a violent word. It, it's a very descriptive word to say that the heavens are ripped open, torn open, and some people have said that's a metaphor for God's breaking into human experience. Why? To deliver us, to save us from sin. Now, I pointed this out in our scripture reading with Matthew, but I'd like you to see it here as well. It says, Jesus was baptized, the Spirit is descending, a voice came from heaven. We have all three members of the Trinity, the Godhead, can be seen or heard here. We have Jesus, he's there with John, he's coming up out of the water, he's being baptized. The Spirit Looks like a dove. That's how he appeared to Jesus and John. You say, how come you keep saying it's only them? Because if you read John, it seems that only John and Jesus were aware of what was happening here. The Spirit is descending. 
and a voice is coming from heaven. So we have the Trinity here. The Spirit descending upon him, this was to empower Jesus, to give him special power here at the beginning of his public ministry. And what does the voice say? God the Father, from heaven, with the heavens open, rent apart, says, you are my beloved son. You are. Present tense. You already are my son. This is a description of the unique sonship of Jesus with his father. He did not become the son of God at that moment. He already was. And God the Father is saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the second half. So what does that mean? I am well pleased. I'm going to ask you some questions. You can answer them audibly or to yourself. How many miracles had Jesus performed at this point? Zero. How many demons had he cast out at this point? Zero. How many sermons had he preached at this point? Zero. Correct. None that we have recorded. How many parables had he told? None that we know of. And yet the Father is pleased with him. Why? How? How is that possible? Because he is sinless? What did you say? He was doing his Father's will. So Scripture is silent about Jesus' childhood and probably his apprenticeship to Joseph, who was a carpenter. The word carpenter could mean a, a tradesman, a craftsman, a handyman. And he likely learned that same trade, and he did it faithfully, in obscurity. Nobody knew he was there. Nobody outside his family who had heard the angel's description and, and predictions of him knew that there was anything special here. But he was faithful. That tells me God cares that we faithfully do what he gives us to do on a daily basis. Kids, if that's make your bed, take out the trash, mow the lawn... Adults, if that's go to work every day, whether you feel like it or not, respect the authorities, government, and bosses over you. Do that every day. That pleases the Father. We're not going to do it perfectly like Jesus did, but he was pleased with the Son before he had ever done any of the public works that we know about, the miracles and the sermons and everything else. Luke 2 says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, and that's all we know about his early life. Now, we have this great event of the baptism, the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son. I am pleased with Him. Someone said that a commissioning by God is often followed by a time of testing, and here it certainly is. We have this huge event high up on the mountain, and boy, here comes a test, a big one. And this leads us to our third point for today. The good news is that Jesus won. Verse 12 starts with what word? Immediately. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Mark does in two verses what two of the other gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, take a large part of a chapter for us. The Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the same one who descended like a dove to empower Jesus for ministry. That same Spirit empowering him, leading him, is saying, Go deeper into the wilderness. Go into the wilderness. What are we talking about? Someone described it as the desolate, arid region, probably the one between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. 
The same spirit that descended to empower him is telling him, go deeper into the wilderness where nobody else is. That same spirit is going to lead him, we know from the other gospels, to fast, not to eat anything for 40 days. Now the wilderness, I'll point it out as we get there, but the wilderness is actually going to be an important part of the book of Mark, an important setting. Where did John the Baptist preach? In the wilderness. Where was he doing his baptisms? At the Jordan, in the wilderness. Where did the Holy Spirit send Jesus before he began his public ministry? Into the wilderness. Where was he tempted by and victorious over Satan? In the wilderness, specifically after fasting and praying for 40 days. So this is the first time, but definitely not the last time, we're going to see the wilderness come up in this book of Mark. That Jesus went into the wilderness on purpose. It's not that he was lost. He, his GPS broke. He went into the wilderness on purpose. And I'll say this for now, and we'll come back to it when it comes up again. If you're desiring a closer walk with God, if you are seeking his will on a matter, if you are desiring to be close to him, you may need to go in the wilderness. And I'm not ta talking about a camping trip or a hiking day, though there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we can get out alone by ourselves, go to the beach, look at the waves, and spend time with God. But by that I mean get out of your normal routine. Get away from the screens in front of your face, whether it's TV or your phone or your computer or whatever. Put those away and pray and listen and read the Bible and hear from him. You say, I, just, I just can't sense God speaking to me. Well, have you turned off all the other noise? We are so easily distracted. I, I start to pray and I'll fall asleep or I'll think of the 10 other things that I need to do today. And all those things come to our mind. We've got to spend time with God. If we want him to speak to us, if we want to know what his will is, if we want wisdom, we've got to calm ourselves and be still and know that he is God and hear from him. We'll come back to that. When it says he was tempted, we're talking about, a, the verb makes it continuous. It happened throughout the 40 days. It's not that he was there 40 days fasting and now he has a temptation. It, it was the whole time he was being tempted. He's being identified with us in temptation because we are certainly tempted. Just like he was identified with us in his baptism, he's being identified with us in temptation. A reminder, I, I believe I mentioned it in the scripture reading, but being tempted is not a sin. It is not a sin to be tempted. Some of us maybe so sensitive or, or for whatever reason, we're going to beat ourselves up because I was tempted today. No, we're all tempted. But how are we responding to it? Are we depending on God? Are we saying no to our, our flesh? Are we saying no to the devil? Are we quoting scripture the way we saw Jesus did according to Matthew? That's what we need to be doing. Satan is God's enemy. We know that. The word Satan literally means adversary. So he's there, and this is an external attack. Again, Doctrinally speaking, he is not a force. Satan is not a force. Satan is not something ambiguous. He is a person. He was created by God as an angel. He was holy. He chose to rebel and fell. And he is now the leader of all of the demon forces, the fallen angels. And he himself is coming to tempt Jesus. We don't have the le level of detail that we have in Matthew or Luke. So if you want to study it, study it on your own. Go back to the series we did in Matthew several years back and check it out in, in chapter 4 there. But here's the tricky part for me. 
Mark is the only one who talks about the wild beasts. Did you see that? The wild beasts. The verse says that he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. What do we do with the wild beasts? Are they part of Satan and the temptation? Are they part of the angels? Not that beasts are angels, but are they, are they good? Are they friendly beasts, in other words? This is unique to Mark's account. And what would the beasts have been? Let's start there. One commentator said that this region abounded with boars, jackals, wolves, foxes, leopards, and hyenas. Not terribly friendly in my mind, but those are the beasts or probably snakes and scorpions and those kind of things as well. I'll spare you all the stuff I read about it this week, but I will, I will share what one person said, and this makes good sense to me. People who are reading Mark's account, who did I say he's writing to? People in Rome, believers in Rome. What's going on in Rome shortly after that and probably not too friendly thus far? When he's writing it, not when, when these events happen with Jesus. Persecution. Some of those Roman emperors would use animals in the arena to tear people apart. So they were not considered friendly and a blessing. I don't think this is talking about Eden when Adam and Eve were friends with all the animals and, and could, could pet or care for any of them. I don't think that's what we're looking at here. He says that the people reading Mark's account associated wild animals with adver adversity and persecution. So including that detail would heighten the horror and the danger of it and someone else said the loneliness of the wilderness. But angels ministered to him. And that verb also says, happening all, all the way through, that the angels are ministering to, serving, um, helping him through the temptation. So how do we apply this? The Life Application Study Bible says, because Jesus faced temptations and overcame them, he can assist us in two ways. As an example of how to face temptation, we've been talking about that, to do so without sinning, and number two, as a helper who knows just what we need because he went through the same thing. He went through the same experience. He is, this account is beneficial toward us, beneficial for us, because he says, I was tempted and I overcame it. I overcame it by quoting scripture. I overcame it by saying no to my own flesh and desires. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all the ways that we can imagine, in all those categories, but he did not sin. This brief account is important to Mark, it seems, because of what's coming in the book. We have, later in this chapter, Jesus is going to cast out a demon, and then another one, and then another one. And the forces of hell are in opposition to Jesus the whole time of his public ministry. From his baptism, the Father's pleased with him. At that point, the fight is on. And Satan comes and tries to tempt him and fails. And other demonic forces are against him. And the authority by which he resisted Satan here is the authority by which he is going to cast out demons later. We will see that in another week or two. What are the ideas for today? The good news is that Jesus came. Aren't you glad he came? We have salvation because Jesus came. The good news is also that Jesus identified with us. In baptism, identifying with people who are sinners. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. 
He's identifying with us, even though he did not know sin himself. He, did, he was not a sinner, but he identified with us and showed us how to deal with temptation. He identified with us that way also. And then the good news is that Jesus won. He defeated Satan in those temptations. So, if there are any unbelievers in the room or watching online, listening, do you believe this good news? That's the good news, as it's defined in these first 13 verses. Do you believe it? Do you believe in Jesus as the Savior, as the Messiah? Have you come to him for forgiveness? He lived and died in our place so that we could have forgiveness in him. Believers, how's your battle with temptation going? Are you even aware of your battle with temptation? I hope so. Are you following Christ's example? Are you submitting to the Holy Spirit? Are you saying no to your flesh so that you're victorious? Are you preparing yourself for battle by being in the Word, by memorizing the Word, by looking at specific passages that deal with what you're struggling with? Are you trying to resist that temptation in your own strength? You're not going to do it by your self-control. Oh, I'm just going to try harder. No. I have to submit to the Holy Spirit. I have to be in the Word if I'm going to have any victory over sin. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, we need your help. And so we come to you again today, submitting ourselves to you, desiring for your help to have victory over sin. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to confess the sin that you convict us of, that we would agree with you about it, that we would know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that if we had come to you for that initial cleansing, that forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus, because of your finished work on Calvary, there's no condemnation left. So help us to live in the reality of the victory that you got on the cross and in your resurrection. May we experience victory today and this week because we are responding to temptation in the way that you did. We thank you for identifying with us. We thank you for living as a human, but setting our example of one who never sinned, who only did the will of his Father. Lord, make us more like you. By your grace, strengthen us. Teach us. May we be helpful to one another in our battles with sin. In Jesus' name, amen.